Vermont, WNYV, Whitehall, Glens Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Wednesday, February 21st. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Our series on the North Country's complicated history for black residents continues with a woman who grew up in a small mining town on Lake Champlain in the 1950s. The town was totally white. It was almost totally Catholic. And for us, <laughs> who, who were neither, it was extremely challenging. New Yorkers largely view Governor Hochul as competent and hardworking, yet a new poll shows she's losing support among voters. Interestingly, her drop was largely among Democrats and among downstate suburban voters. So I don't know whether it's that the voters don't see her making progress on the issues they care about. And the Grass River Players Community Theater group celebrates its 50th anniversary. We'll take a look back with two longtime players. All that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Blue Seed Studios, a multidisciplinary arts center featuring classes for adults and youth, concerts, art exhibits, and more, bluseedstudios.org. And Fort Dela Presentation, hosting the 10th anniversary St. Lawrence Valley Primitive Snowshoe Biathlon, March 2nd and 3rd at the St. Lawrence Sportsman's Club in Lisbon. Details at fort1749.org. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Nearly 500 people have signed a petition calling for Clinton County Sheriff David Favreau to resign. According to the Plattsburgh Press Republican, a former employee created the position last month. That person is among a growing list of former female employees who allege sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and retaliation within the department. Several women have filed federal lawsuits against the Clinton County Sheriff's Department for how they were treated. Favreau says the allegations are false. According to the Albany Times Union, the state attorney general's office is investigating and has interviewed four former corrections officers who worked at the county jail. Favreau has served as the Clinton County Sheriff for more than 20 years. A new poll finds Governor Kathy Hochul's popularity is slipping among New York voters. Karen DeWitt reports Santa College poll also found a decided lack of enthusiasm for the likely Democratic and Republican candidates in the 2024 presidential race. Hochul, who enjoyed her highest favorability and job performance ratings in January, saw those numbers fall by eight percentage points this month. The poll finds that most New Yorkers think Hochul is hardworking, and a plurality of voters believe she is an honest politician. But many don't view her as a strong leader, and they believe she's out of touch with the average New Yorker. Siena pollster Steve Greenberg says the governor lost ground among some core voting blocks, ones that Democrats need to be competitive in this year's congressional races. Interestingly, her drop was largely among Democrats and among downstate suburban voters. So I don't know whether it's 
some of her budget proposals, the fact that the voters don't see her making progress on the issues they care about. Hochul has gained negative attention for her proposal to make changes to the state's school aid formula, which would result in some school districts in suburban and rural areas receiving less money this year than they would have under the old rules. She also has scaled back plans for affordable housing after failing last year to win passage of an ambitious project. Greenberg says Hochul's numbers might have also taken a hit from the hotly contested congressional race to replace George Santos. The downstate airwaves, TV, radio were filled with commercials. Certainly crime and the influx of migrants into New York were major issues in that campaign. So maybe that had an effect on her numbers. The state's conservative party was quick to pounce on the poll numbers. In a statement, party chair Jerry Kassar said that New Yorkers have had it with the precipitous decline in quality of life under Governor Hochul and the one-party Democratic rule of the New York State Legislature. Kassar blames liberal policies and says the state needs stark political change. The poll also asked about this year's presidential contest. It found anemic support for both frontrunners, Democratic President Joe Biden and Republican former President Donald Trump. In a head-to-head matchup, Biden leads Trump 48 percent to 36 percent in blue New York, but both have lackluster favorability ratings. Greenberg says the poll for the first time asked voters how many would like the next president to be someone other than those two men. We said if you had your choice, and you could choose the next president, would it be Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or someone else? And a plurality of New York voters said, please, give me a president not named Trump or Biden. The poll found only 7% think both Biden and Trump are physically and mentally fit to serve a four-year term. The poll also asked about a four-way race, including independent candidates Cornell West and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. In that matchup, Biden led Trump by just 10 points, with West getting 6% of voter support and Kennedy receiving 13%. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. A coalition of small-town newspapers in New York is urging state lawmakers to pass a bill to keep local papers afloat. According to the North Country Now, more than 100 newspapers have formed the Empire State Local News Coalition. They're advocating for legislation that provides tax credits to papers for employing local news journalists and incentivizes businesses to advertise in local publications. In the last 20 years, New York has lost 40% of its newspapers and half of its journalists. This decline has left 13 counties with just one newspaper and one county entirely paperless. According to the paper, about 350 newsrooms across the state would benefit from the tax credit legislation. New York State Police arrested a nursing home patient after she allegedly assaulted her nurse in Elizabethtown on Thursday. According to police reports, 80-year-old Mary Lange had asked her nurse at the Essex Center nursing home for cough syrup and nebulizer treatment. When the nurse told her it wasn't time for her treatment yet, Lange allegedly wrapped the nebulizer cord around her neck. The nurse broke free, but then police say Lange shoved her into a linen closet and began pulling her hair. The nurse was not injured. Police charged Lange with criminal obstruction of breathing. She was released and set to appear in Elizabethtown Court later this month. An addiction center for women in St. Lawrence County is celebrating its five-year anniversary. Catherine Healy reports Grace House is the only residential program in the county for women who are recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. 
Women can come to the facility in Canton from inpatient or outpatient treatment programs. Grace House's Executive Director, Carolyn White, says it's a safe living environment for women in early recovery. They can get a firm foothold into being clean and sober, and after they're there for 30, 40 days, they can go to school, uh, get a job, get a volunteer position uh, to start working themselves back into full community life. Six people can be at Grace House at a time, and 82 women have been admitted to the facility over the last five years. White says there's usually a spot open for when someone needs it. She says having a program like this in the North Country can keep women from having to travel far distances to bigger cities for the same services. There's a need for places like Grace House. There's a need and a place for every outpatient service in this county and every detox bed in this county and every other county. Every service is badly, badly needed. Grace House is financially supported by several churches around the area, along with individual donations. To celebrate its five-year anniversary, Grace House is hosting an open house this Sunday afternoon. There will be a tour and women staying at the house, along with some staff, will be there to talk about the program. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 810. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Stick around. One of upstate New York's oldest community theater groups is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. We sat down with two longtime members of the Grass River Players in Canton to hear some of their favorite memories. That conversation coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. Music by Dan Berggren out of Boston Spa. Northern Light is supported by St. Lawrence Nurseries, Potsdam, accepting orders now through April 12th for cold hardy fruit and nut trees. Details at slngrow.com. is Black History Month, and we're re-airing stories from the last year about Black history and life in the North Country. Today, we hear from Alice Green, a Black woman who grew up in the 1950s and 60s in a small mining town on Lake Champlain. Her childhood experiences have shaped her life's work. Amy Fireisel reports. 
Today, Alice Green is a lifelong activist and academic. She has a doctorate in criminal justice and has worked with Albany's police department on equity and diversity issues. But in 1948, Green was just seven years old and had just moved to the North Country with her parents and five siblings. Her father had found a job with Republic Steel, working in a blasting furnace. Green says they moved largely as a way to escape the Deep South. Because of Jim Crow segregation, and also the criminal justice system itself. The Witherby Sherman mine was one of the largest pre-war producers of iron ore in the country. Its hub was Port Henry, and there was actually a black community there, about 13 families living in company housing, all on the same street. Elizabeth Street in Port Henry is where everybody lived. They developed this community. They even established a church. But that housing was full when Green's father was hired, and they got housing in Witherby, a small town five miles away. It was full of other mine workers, many first-generation immigrants from Europe. The Greens were one of two black families there. The town was totally white. It was almost totally Catholic. And for us, <laughs> who, who were neither, it was extremely challenging. Green says there were other black people scattered around the North Country, cooks in Lake Placid, military men in Plattsburgh, apple pickers in Peru, but they rarely saw them. Green says her family always felt like outsiders in Witherby. Green's new memoir is called Outsider. She was inspired to write it after attending a high school reunion. She says former classmates waxed poetic about how when they'd grown up, racial tensions didn't exist. Green was floored. That hadn't been the story of her Adirondack childhood, which she says was full of subtle racism. They don't come to your house and, you know, burn crosses and things like that. It was also blatant racism. She almost never felt welcome. Kids didn't invite her to birthday parties. And racist language was everywhere, even in schoolyard games. And it was eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch nigger by his toe. That was so accepted. Everywhere I went, I mean, not only kids... But adults, they repeated that over and over again. Nearly a century after the Civil War, Green says life was far from equal. She saw that the summer she was 15 years old, when she and one of her few friends, a next-door neighbor named Myrtle, both got their working papers and found summer jobs as chambermaids down near Paradox Lake. We were just so excited. We thought we would go and work and be roommates. They got a ride down to Paradox and met the owner, Mrs. Claudis. Mrs. Claudis and her family lived in this Big, gorgeous apartment. Mrs. Claudis gestured to Green's friend. She said, Myrtle, you're going to stay here. Then she took young Alice to the backyard, where there was an old barn. She said, this is where you will live. And that was totally confusing to me, because when I walked in, there was nothing there except a cot. Green learned that other adult black workers also stayed in the barn, but they worked nights, so Green was left alone. I would be the only one up in this barn and didn't understand the separation thing quite. It was dark. I, didn't, I was 40 miles from my home. And I could hear my mother saying, stay there. You know, you need to make money. But something else told me <laughs> that this wasn't right. She got up as soon as it was light and asked to speak with Mrs. Claudis. I told her, I don't understand why the black people are living in the barn. And that there are bats there and I want to live with my with my friend. And she said, you can't do that. Green quit on the spot. Her friend Myrtle had heard it all. And she said, well, I quit too. <laughs> so the two of us <laughs> gathered our thing. We had no idea how we were going to get home. None whatsoever.
But Green said that didn't matter to her. And she points to that moment as when she learned how to do the right thing, even if it was hard. I never regretted it. I didn't, you know, I couldn't get another job. I had to use my old clothes and all that stuff. But I felt good about myself. And that's where a lot of what I do comes from. Green went to college at SUNY Albany and got her master's in education. After working as a teacher and doing community work in low-income neighborhoods, she got two more masters in social work and criminology, then a doctorate in criminal justice. She says most of her education was motivated by a desire to help incarcerated people. She says there have been lots of hard moments in her career, but she's never shied away from them. I have to confront people, and I can confront anybody. You know, people in power doesn't bother me whatsoever. (laughs) As long as I think that I'm doing the right thing. In 1985, Green founded the Center for Law and Justice in Albany, a nonprofit that works to aid incarcerated people and keep new people from entering prisons. She still visits the Adirondacks regularly and has a place in Essex with her husband, which is where we spoke. She says she loves introducing people to the area and enjoying it herself. And to go places where I wouldn't think I could be uh, when I was growing up. I mean, the message that we got was, that's not for you. In Lake Placid especially. <laughs> now, I come back to enjoy what was off limits to me. <laughs> when people ask Green where she's from, she tells them, the Adirondacks. Amy Fireisel, North Country Public Radio, on the shores of Lake Champlain. This story originally aired last October, soon after Green released her memoir titled Outsider Stories of Growing Up Black in the Adirondacks. Green previously published a book about her working life, prisons, and civil rights. It's titled We Who Believe in Freedom. You can find links to both books in the online story at our website, ncpr.org. And tomorrow on the show, we'll hear from a North Country historian who wrote a new book that details the lives of black people in the region from before the revolution. War to the 1930s. Listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, Canton's Grass River Players Theater Group is celebrating 50 years of stage productions and friendships. That conversation in just a minute. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather. According to the Weather Service, mostly sunny skies across the region today with highs this afternoon, mid to upper 30s, light winds out of the south, lows near 20 overnight tonight under partly cloudy skies tomorrow, partly to mostly cloudy, maybe an occasional rain shower Thursday, highs low 40s and light winds out of the south. And then Friday, highs upper 30s, low 40s, with about a 70% chance of a wintry mix. It's going to be a little colder this weekend with uh, highs in the 20s and 30s on Saturday and Sunday. But it then looks like uh, highs in the 40s for the early part of next week. Right now, we have sunshine, 28 degrees here in Canton.
It started in 1974 with a small group of theater lovers in Canton wanting to build an outlet for creativity. This year, the Grass River Players celebrates 50 years of producing a wide variety of theater, from radio plays to musicals to original full-length dramas. The community theater group's 50th anniversary celebrations include a Canton Winterfest production on March 2nd. It's titled "A Slice of Pizza, A Slice of Theater at Sergi's." Which will include scenes and songs from past productions. I caught up recently with two longtime members of the Grass River Players, Carol Berard and Barbara Burdick, to hear about their favorite local theatrical moments from the group's hundreds of productions. We've never really counted up all the like the the murder mysteries and just all the other other productions that we've done, but it was all due to Sylvia Angus. She taught English over at、uh, Potsdam State, and she, of course, was interested in theater. And、uh, she knew that there were a bunch of us, and I'm saying a bunch because it was a bunch <laughs> that、uh, wanted to do something. You know, we wanted to get together and, and do things. And so we got together in her front room on a cold January night, and decided,、uh, let's do this. We have no money. We have no sets. We have no costumes. But what we have are people who are really excited and interested in doing something like this. And this community needs it. It still does. Yeah.、Uh, so we just sat there.、Uh, we had a lovely time. But then we just started, and then、uh, there were some other meetings, and we decided that our first show. Would be don't drink the water, and it was very popular. Everybody, we had a lot of people. We did it at Canton Central School. That was the kickoff, and we've been doing shows ever since. Barbara, what brought you into the group? Why did you get? How did you get involved? You're a musician and a music teacher, and was that? Did you help with some of the musicals? Is that the idea? Yes, I、um, got my feet wet. Uh, at Canton Central, doing some a little bit of of music direction with Rose Hodge, who was a big GRP director for us, and she said, "Well, we need a director for this next show,、uh, a music director." And somebody asked me, and so my first show was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although. We started out planning to do, I think it was called Big River. We cast Big River, and then somehow there was a problem, and we couldn't get the rights to do it. So we ended up changing our mind less than two months before the production. We got started right away, and the choreographer took people that she had and took a, a CD and taught them how to do the dance. And then we got the rights to do. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum, and I got the music for the orchestra. And that dance was not in the orchestra music. Oh no! It posed a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, we we worked it out. But that was my first introduction to the whole thing, and it was a lot of fun. And、yeah. I got to know a lot of other musicians in the area, and because of that, they still kept coming. And playing in my pits whenever I do something else. So,、yeah. we did not have a venue for this year's Canton Winterfest, and we struggled with that. So, we have come up with 
a slice of pizza, a slice of theater. Okay, tell us about it, Barbara, because that's your <laughs> winter—that's your Winterfest production. This will yeah. be our Winterfest production. It's at Sergi's on Saturday, March second, at two o'clock. You get a slice of pizza and some theater. People who have done productions will be coming and reprising what they have done—a song or a scene. You know, at some point, we were really lucky that St. Lawrence opened up their theater to us in the summertime. John Lawrence was a big help to us. He yes, would, he uh, we would have his stagecraft class, would um, do the tech work. They did the lights, the sound. I think the first show we did there, I was lucky to direct. It was Music Man. Yes. And my God. That Complete was with a, a marching band? Yep. A- absolutely. <laughs> we, we rented uh, band uniforms from some school. So every, every kid that was in the show had a band uniform. And, they, and it was just the most fun show I think I've ever done. And the biggest show. There were 70-some people on stage. Yeah. It was really popular. And it was it was the time when we were doing this. There was no air conditioning in the building, so you can imagine summertime. It was lots of people. It yeah. was lots of people in the audience. It was very hot, and then to top it off, the uh, fire alarm went off. The uh, fire curtain came down with a clump, and the actors stayed in one place. The audience didn't have didn't leave. And finally, the fire marshal came out and said it was just a false alarm. It was probably the heat. So the fire curtain goes back up, and we You're resume the up. show. <laughs> the show must go on. <laughs> I love that story. Oh, it was it, that was a it was a lot of fun. It was yes, some, it was. Okay, so fifty years on twenty twenty four. Why is community theater still? important and vital, would you say? Well, you get to meet a lot of people. I mean, it, uh, if, you're, if you're new in the, uh, in the area, you immediately get to, to meet. And, and a lot of the people that you meet uh, when you do a show become really good friends and lasting friends. It takes some commitment, some mm-hmm. time commitment, so you get to know each other pretty well. Yeah. As well as the characters that yeah. are involved. I would say that I think everybody has a need to be creatively expressive, or at least many people do. Mm-hmm. And community theater allows you the opportunity to express yourself in whatever way you need. And people say, oh, I have to be an actor. Well, no, we need people who to create costumes. We need people to create sets. We need people to to do lighting and sound and all that's involved mm-hmm. to create audiences, to build audiences. We It's much more than just acting. You get to meet people who share the same passions that you do. It's important just as playing on a team sport is important because mm-hmm. you learn to work as a team to create yes. something that the audience shares in as well. Can I say one couple you more things? You sure can. <laughs> I just want to say that in the future, what's coming up, celebrating our 50th anniversary this year, is we're having a party at the Best Western oh, University right. on Saturday, April 13th. 
There will be food. There will be a DJ. There will be dancing. There will be raffles. But it should be a grand party that anybody who likes to have a good time will enjoy coming to. And we always have our annual meeting that's open to anyone who's interested in coming. It's early June. And I, uh, on behalf of the Grass River Players, would like to thank all of the many, many people and institutions who have supported us through the years. We wouldn't be a community theater without all of you. That's for sure. Barbara Burdick and Carol Burrard are longtime members of the Grass River Players, Canton's community theater troupe, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And you can hear more of our conversation about community theater and some favorite memories on our website at ncpr.org. Going out with some music by High on the Hog. The trio has a a concert this Sunday. This Sunday in North Creek, they'll be playing at the Tannery Pond Community Center. Sunday afternoon, 3 to 5, as part of their Winter Coffee House series. Refreshments and snacks available. Tickets are $15 in advance, $20 at the door. For more information, check out tannerypond.org. That's High on the Hog, Sunday afternoon, 3 to 5 in North Creek. That's it for the show for the day. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. Then join us at lunchtime today for an important conversation on fresh air. Writer Lucy Sant shares her story of transitioning from male to female at 67 years old. Her new memoir is I Heard Her Call My Name, a conversation between noon and one o'clock right here on North Country Public Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Be well.